0: welcome to the history film club i'm alex von tanzelman a historian and screenwriter i'm hannah gregg a historian and a consultant to film and television and today we have a very exciting applicant to join the history film club we have matthew page Matthew's a writer, speaker and independent scholar who's been researching on-screen adaptations of the Bible for over 20 years and his new book from the BFI is 100 Bible Films. Welcome, Matt. You've watched 100 of these things.
1: Yeah, well, at least quite, quite <laughs> a few more, actually.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Even more. <laughs> yeah. There's,
1: there's about 800, so I haven't watched all of those. Wow, <laughs> so,
0: wow, that's a lot.
1: But yeah, there's, there's at least that many out there.
0: Oh, my goodness. Well, how amazing. I mean... Obviously, we can sort of start off by asking you, what's your fave?
1: Well, that's a really difficult question. I mean, that's one of those questions. If I could answer that, I probably wouldn't have had to write the book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I could have probably just stopped at about 10 and gone, that's my favourite. I think one of the things that's really interesting about them as a collection of films is there's so many you know different types of films. And so there's certain days when I might be in the mood for Life of Brian and there's other days when I might be in the mood for kind of you know the Ten Commandments or something like that uh, but other times there's kind of more you know experimental and more modern film takes on it as well so so yeah it really does vary depending on the day and the mood really
0: and that's kind of a crucial point isn't it that actually because I think if you say biblical epics a lot of people probably are thinking of those sort of 40s 50s big you know mm. technicolor you know inaccurate costumes lots of eye makeup yeah White people pretending to be Egyptians, short tunics, biblical <laughs> epic, um, and actually is much broader category than that, really, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean that was one of the things I really kind of wanted to bring out. Really, was just how many different types of film there are, and, and the kind of as well as that the kind of geographical and historical range on them as well. So, as well as the epics, you know, there's comedies we've already mentioned Life of Brian, but there's musicals, there's animated films, silent films, there's kind of more experimental type cinema, examples from queer cinema. And, you know, there's always kind of horror elements or, or often kind of horror elements in there. Um, and there's even a kind of sci-fi time travel one that I managed to squeeze in that was uh, <laughs> has to be seen to be believed, really. <laughs> and
0: presumably there's quite a big geographical range as well in terms of the filmmaking of these films. We probably think of those big Hollywood yeah. blockbusters. But, but where else have you been finding that Bible films have been made?
1: Well, I mean, I think, as you say, they are from from all over. So I've kind of managed to include kind of films from six continents and, you know, somewhere around 30 different countries. Wow. um, Although some of those are kind of co-productions. But um, I think because of the nature of the story, you know, it's kind of ubiquitous. It's kind of in so many different cultures, and it's kind of had a role to play in so many different countries across the world that filmmakers from, you know, all over the world have a go at the story and all kinds of different religious persuasions as well. So... So yeah, that's one of the things that makes it really interesting.
0: And what about the reception in different places? Obviously, you know, the first film that comes to mind perhaps today is The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's cinematic epic. But in terms of this bigger geographical range that you've been working with within the book, Mm. do you find there's a significant difference in terms of reception and intention in the creation of these films and different sorts of audiences?
1: Yeah, very much. I mean, even with The Passion of the Christ, it was received very differently in different countries. So for example, they didn't go down at all well in Israel, but some of the kind of neighboring countries were much more in favor of it. Uh, And obviously (laughs) it's huge in America, but relatively lukewarm here. And again, and some of these other stories as well. And so one of the films in the book is a kind of Islamic take on the Jesus story from Iran. And what they actually do is they kind of wanted it to be a kind of dialogue piece between Muslims and Christians. And so they kind of showed a, a kind of Muslim take on the story alongside a traditional Christian take. And so you kind of have this slightly unusual kind of two endings thing, a bit like the end of Wayne's World. Um, and they kind of <laughs> and they do this, um, they kind of do it a kind of Christian way and then say, oh, yeah, but, you know, the Gospel of Barnabas doesn't do it like this. And it you know, actually goes with that ending instead, where Jesus doesn't actually die on the cross, he's replaced by Judas.
0: That's just like an amazing film. I mean, often films, you know, film different endings, but actually to create that as part of the end point is fascinating.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting film.
0: Whenabouts was that made?
1: Uh, I think it was about 2007, I think it is.
0: Okay, so it's kind of pretty recent.
1: Yeah, it is pretty recent, yeah.
0: Okay, we're going to have to see that one.
1: Yeah, and it was kind of slightly in reaction to The Passion of Christ that that was made. I see, right, a response piece. Yeah.
0: And why, I mean, I think there's sort of fairly obvious examples, as you said, it's sort of some of this storytelling is so embedded in our cultures. And even for those of us who aren't sort of necessarily Christians or even aren't necessarily part of the Abrahamic faiths at all, Yeah, you know, they're sort of so culturally present that you can see why people keep coming back to them. But when these films hit big, what is it about them that really kind of keeps people coming back? Is it a kind of religious drive or is it to do with a sort of, different form of storytelling
1: i mean i think one of the things that's been important about bible films why they've kind of had such a long history and that kind of consistent tradition within within cinema is that there are a number of different reasons why people want to see them and we can kind of see this going right back to the early days really so some of the first films were made because they were people trying to kind of use the new medium to kind of spread the message basically and were commissioned from that point of view. But then you quite quickly get uh, Georges Méliès coming along and starting to use camera trickery, and the miracles are an ideal way to kind of showcase the kind of stuff that cinema could do. And that tradition of the kind of spectacle and the special effects and everything has continued to be a, a significant stream that they've been able to kind of produce spectacular things. So you get Demille passing the Red Sea and some of the other kind of special effects he uses through to CGI and the kind of more recent films like Darren Aronofsky's Nowhere. But you do also have this kind of more of this kind of Mel Gibson element where it's about mobilising Christians and almost setting it up as a kind of test of, you know, are you faithful? And this is an evangelistic opportunity, as he called it. And it's also, it's the thing of when stories are known, there's always an audience for them and people already know the story and it's always much easier to to sell existing Known stories than it is to come up with creative things, and so for all those reasons, really, filmmakers are drawn to them, and it then means that you've got kind of maybe four access points for audiences rather than just one.
0: Good old existing IP filmmakers, love, well. yeah, I suppose this yeah. is you know, God's own IP. Well, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's no better uh, pre-published material than the biggest selling book of all time.
0: Absolutely. I mean, yeah, even more than I go for Christie. I mean,
1: yeah.
0: So, <laughs> I mean, so yeah, I mean, and I. Totally see what you're saying. And I think it's very interesting how the visual effects keep people coming back. But also, isn't mm. there a bit of the element of sex? Because clearly in some of these sort of yeah. 50s ones, you know, I'm thinking things like Solomon and Sheba or Samson and Delilah. Mm. Because it was a biblical film, they could get away with some really quite sexy bits and yeah. some very, very small costumes. And this was probably <laughs> a bit motivating as well, right? That you could sneak it in.
1: Oh, definitely, <laughs> yeah. And, and particularly during the kind of Hayes Production Code era, it was, because it was the Bible, it was kind of given a bit more leeway. And so as you say, those films particularly were able to kind of trade on this, well you can't ban this story, it's from the Bible but really pushing the envelope in terms of what was acceptable in terms of sexuality at the time.
0: And I mean Charlton Heston seems to star in quite a few of the 1950s yeah. ones and um, as my husband said well his jawline is chiselled by God so, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's why <laughs> he's a religion in himself yeah. so... <laughs> Well, also, I was interested that you said in the intro about sort of, you know, queer versions of this history as well. This Mm. reminds me because I do love to show my screenwriting students when I'm trying to teach them about subtext. I always show them that scene from Ben-Hur, where Charlton Heston playing Ben-Hur, Judah Ben-Hur meets, I think, is it Masala, who's his child's friend. And they have like the most incredibly gay conversation, which I think was scripted by Gore Vidal.
1: Yeah.
0: And apparently, I mean, the, the legend, I don't know, maybe you can tell me if this is a truth or an untruth, is that um, they didn't tell Charlton Heston that it was a gay scene. <laughs> so yeah, they only told the the Stephen
1: Boyd. Yeah, that's the version I'm familiar with as well. But I don't know whether it's, uh, whether it's truth or myth, but it is a great one. And, and it is one of those films. And I do know there are kind of queer film scholars that have talked about how the early biblical epics were quite a kind of avenue for them when other avenues weren't available at that stage. And there are more overtly gay films as well out there, particularly The Garden by Derek Jarman in the 1990s. And also, to a kind of slightly lesser extent, but there was a kind of 1922 film by Adeline Nazimova. You know, there was all kinds of rumours about her and it's kind of thought to have been a bisexual. And that's a film that, you know, very much weighs it's kind of it's sexuality on its sleeve, I think, yeah, within the, the kind of some of the confines of his day, although in the 1920s, things were a bit more open than they were in the 30s.
0: Yeah, pre-code. Do what you like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And um, She's amazing, actually. In fact, any listeners to this podcast that want to go and Google Alan Azamova is yeah. amazing. Very, very interesting life.
1: It was a salome, that one. Oh, salome. Very loosely based on Oscar Wilde, but some just kind of fantastic headdresses and sets all these kind of incredible art deco sets
0: and completely by chance i had stumbled across a 1906 silent film the birth the life and the death of christ yeah and, and I, I came across it only because i was looking to try and find out who the first women filmmakers were
1: mm. and that
0: was made by alice guy the french filmmaker wasn't it and yeah. is that the first bible film as well it's 1906 silent film it's about 30 minutes long is that one of the
1: earliest It is one of the earliest. There was quite a few more um, before then. But yeah, that's a really good film. I think it's quite groundbreaking in terms of some of its technique as well. Um, I wasn't kind of able to fully go into all that in, in the book, but just some of the things she started to do with the cameras and the innovations in terms of kind of depth of field and movement around the camera is really striking. But the earliest of all of them was 1897. Oh, wow. But those first couple from 1897 are now lost. So the earliest one I talk about is... 1898 mm. um, which was and all three of those were kind of passion films and then there were a few more passion type films and then there's a 1902 one with uh, with daniel in daniel in the lion's den and so you know you've got the kind of using the jump cuts and, and the kind of actual lines in there um to kind of create a bit of, bit of drama <laughs> and around the same time there was this kind of evolving film from Pathé that ran from, I think, the first version of it they made in 1898, but they kind of kept evolving it and sticking different bits in and reshooting bits. And so it kind of ran between 1898 and 1914 was the last one of those. So really interesting as well.
0: I know it's Marvel at the length of cinematic history, and it seems like such a simple point to make, but Mm. we just tend to presume it's a modern contemporary media, but actually it's over 100 years old now. It's just, there's so much kind of change, and not just in technology, but just in terms of spirit and audience. And so taking us right back to the start, to those 1890s productions, yeah. it's
1: fascinating. In terms of the history that's on display, I think, again, it's interesting you've got the the stories themselves, but because it's been there for so long and so consistently, you also kind of see that reception history of how these stories are, have been understood. And you can kind of go back and look at the films from 120, 125 years ago, you know, and see how differently they're telling the story compared to how we tell it today and the different kind of liberties we take with it. And some of that's because of technology, but a lot of that is is actually about changing social attitudes as well.
0: I mean, an extraordinary evolution, really, to go from Mm. what you're talking about, which sort of sound basically, I mean, I think you say this in the book, sort of rooted in passion plays and a kind of much older tradition of biblical storytelling, these kind of very early films. To go from that to, you know, we've got to talk about him, Cecil B. DeMille, He's really, I suppose, who I think of when I think of biblical epics, yeah. you know, so much creating this Hollywood language of them on an enormous scale, huge budgets, mm. you know, quite sexy, a bit of moralising <laughs> and an awful lot of pretty much straightforward entertainment. How do you think Cecil B. DeMille became so kind of associated with this, you know, creating this language of biblical filmmaking?
1: Well, what's surprising is that he got so far through his film career before he'd even made one. And so I think (laughs) he'd made, out of his first 50 films or something, I think only one of them was a biblical film. But he then made The King of Kings in 1927, The Sign of the Cross in the 30s, and then Samson Delilah in the 10th Amendment. And he seemed to kind of hit that stride. And that now is what he's remembered for. Whereas, you know, in the mid to late 20s, he was, you know, doing kind of parlour stories and westerns and that kind of thing. And that was what he was known for. And I think there was this vein running through him that 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 genre just kind of suited who he was in his upbringing. So I think he had uh, his father was a minister and his mum was a kind of stage show performer. And you kind of see those twin influences at play through his films. People often think that he's kind of being cynical in terms of how he's using the kind of the sex... To sell the morality or the morality to sell the sex. But actually, I think it might be a bit more of a kind of a real thing for him that he didn't see those things in tension (laughs) because that was his life. And they just kind of sat comfortably alongside each other for him. And as a result, we get these huge epics with this kind of sexual content alongside him, you know, moralising about following the laws of God, as well as these kind of political themes that he bends the stories towards.
0: Alex, when you when you introduced that and you started saying it's possible not to talk about dot, 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 and you said Cecil B. DeMille, I thought you were going to say The Life of Brian. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, well, if we're going to talk about Bible films, then surely the film that we have to talk about <laughs> is The Life well, of Brian. I mean, well, yeah. I mean, in a sense, and um, Matt, I'd love to know your thoughts on because, you know, as you say, obviously a lot of these films, like, you know, during the Hays Code period, mm. which, you know, for any listeners that aren't familiar with, is when there was sort of quite heavy film censorship for morality reasons in Hollywood. So, you know, obviously there was an attraction ending biblical epic, as you say, we could sort of sneak in a bit of nudity or whatever under this kind of aegis of it being morally improving. That ends, you know, really by the 1960s. And... You know, I suppose that does change what a biblical film is, right? It doesn't anymore have this function, and you do see a sort of drop off of the big Hollywood ones mm. as the sixties carry on into the seventies. Yeah. You know, so, Life of Brian actually comes in, I think, as especially. As you know, does the biblical film reinvent itself as something new for a different era?
1: I think you certainly see that in the seventies because you also get Jesus Christ Superstar in the seventies mm. and a few others, um, and and so both those films are. Much more kind of questioning and aren't so much kind of doffing the hat, and are using more creative forms as well from a kind of cinematically. So you have the the kind of rock opera of Superstar, and you have the parody and the and the humour of Life of Brian. And I mean, Life of Brian itself obviously trades very heavily on biblical epic. You know, there's an awful lot of parody in there, and the more you know your way around biblical epics, I think the more you get out of out of it. Mm. Um, because it is so just so rooted in those films, you know. There's lots of just little visual jokes, you know, like the shortness of the skirts of the centurions and so on. But <laughs> you know, you can only really appreciate those if you've watched all those films that have gone before it.
0: And thanks to your work, I know that you know one of the terms that's used to describe the genre of Bible films is peplum
1: films, yeah. which
0: you know relates to that short skirt, doesn't it? That mm. that costumed effect, and also I hadn't appreciated it until I was thinking about uh, Chessity's Stay, that Jesus Christ Superstar had been made into a film, as well as, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber's stage musical, it was also yeah. the film. And so I saw some clips of it on YouTube, and I sent some to Alex <laughs> beforehand, <laughs> because, um, <laughs> yes, I was just amazed that there was kind of pop, rock version of the Bible story on screen yeah. with Jesus and Flares, basically. Yes, <laughs> kind of Peplum meets Flares in the 1970s was the genre of uh, <laughs> particular <laughs> moment,
1: that particular moment, that filmmaking movement. I mean, the costume in that film is is really striking as well because they kind of mix and match. It's it's quite deliberate. It's not kind of strayed into. Oops, we've given you know Judas flares. They deliberately kind of take those elements of the kind of historical period and sit them right alongside the kind of modern period. If you've not seen the film, for those people who haven't seen the film, at the start you get this kind of bunch of uh, kind of students getting off a bus, modern day students getting off a bus and kind of taking the props off the bus, and then they go and kind of perform this thing. But for almost all of the film, the musical is performed as if you are then watching a film to the extent you kind of almost forget about that opening scene, except it kind of has this thing where it deliberately kind of jars you out of the kind of the epic and the the sword and sandals and and back into into the modern day. And it's really interesting how it never really lets you sit in either groove. You know, it's constantly jumping between one and the other and making you kind of think about that.
0: And that makes me wonder about sort of a fairly sort of substantial issue around biblical ethics, which is one of sacrilege mm. and offence. I mean, obviously, Life of Brian, I'm sure lots of people know, did cause quite considerable offence yeah. at the time, even though, of course, you know, Jesus is a character in the film. Brian is not Jesus. Mm. Brian is a different character. Jesus is, he only appears in the background, a bit like in Ben-Hur. Uh, yeah. You only sort of see him yeah. from afar. Um, I mean, offence, like, obviously, some of these films in the 70s and the 80s you know, including The Last Temptation of Christ and things like that, are setting out to be really quite challenging Mm. from that point of view. But, you know, is that sort of part of what the Bible film becomes is actually a sort of provocation?
1: Uh, I think it doesn't. It doesn't really. I mean, certainly since the kind of 70s, there's kind of been that continual thread of people wanting to challenge the story wanting to explore the story because it is so powerful still, both in the UK and in America and many other countries around the world. So... There is also a kind of people wanting more artistic freedom on the one hand and people being uncomfortable with that on the other hand because it's an important story to them. And so, you know, Life of Brian, as you said, was controversial, as was Last Temptation of Christ. But uh, there were also complaints around um, uh, Jean-Luc Godard did uh, Hail Mary, which was kind of about, Mm. about Mary kind of becoming pregnant with Jesus. And in our own day yeah you know, we know the kind of controversy around Passion in the Christ which was from a from a slightly different angle but there have been other films as well I mean I, I don't talk about the Stuart Lee Jerry Spring of the Opera but obviously that's been controversial in recent years as well and there are others besides and I think it is that thing of part of the reason that the genre is popular is because people do really hold to its term people do consider it important and for some people that's a good thing and for other people that's a thing that needs to kind of be explored I mean I don't think with Scorsese and Last Temptation, I don't think he was setting out to try and make a controversial film and, and stir it up that way. I think it was just part of him exploring his own upbringing and his own, the, mm. his own kind of tensions he feels. And, and 30 years later, he's still making silence and still exploring those, those kind of issues as well. Well, I
0: mean, here at the History Film Club, we love to find out about films that we, you know, might not have seen before or necessarily know that much about. So if there was one film that you think has sort of been forgotten amongst your hundreds Bible films that our listeners and the members of the club should watch, what would you suggest? What would be your top choice for us to to look at?
1: Right. Well I wouldn't say it's been exactly forgotten, but I think perhaps the uh, yeah, perhaps the one that is the best film and certainly one of the most interesting films is one by the Italian director, Pier Paolo Pasolini. And it's called uh, Il Vangio Secondo Matteo, uh, which is the gospel according to Matthew. And this was a film that was made in the 1960s, kind of at the end of that peak biblical epic and era. And he takes things in a completely different direction. He was a Marxist, he was homosexual and um, atheist. And he'd actually had a kind of run-in with the, the Catholic Church over another film he'd made for supposedly being kind of blasphemous, but incredibly mild by today's standards. And somehow he was inspired to try and bring together two of these tensions, this kind of Christian religion and Catholicism, which was very strong in Italy in the 1960s still, and his own kind of political leanings. And he kind of brings all these elements together, as well as quite an interesting approach to some of the the kind of textual issues around the Gospel. So, for example, with the Sermon on the Mount rather than just doing it all as one kind of sermon up a big hill. You kind of see the camera cutting, focusing on his face, but the background changing and the time of day and the clothes and stuff he's wearing to reflect, you know, the fact that either he would have had to have done it a lot of times or the fact that it was probably composed of various other bits of smaller teaching brought together. And on top of that, it has an absolutely fantastic soundtrack. The soundtrack is uh, is really is really moving uh, and, and amazing. So... That's a film really to see. I know Mark Coe, for example, he thinks that's the best Bible film uh, and there's a lot of other people that agree with that. I think if you watch it, there are a few dodgy versions out there, so you, you have to see it really <laughs> in black and white and subtitled. Someone has gone along and kind of committed heresy in, in terms of colorizing it and, and dubbing it. Oh, they oh, coloured it in? No. Yeah, colouring in. No, absolutely. <laughs> It's just a very, you know, it's a very interesting film. There's a lot of ideas going on there. Um, and you kind of get this Jesus who is kind of this revolutionary figure and is kind of angry against the injustice and the oppression. And he's kind of marching around the Judean countryside, kind of spitting these phrases out over his shoulder as he uh, as he sets out from one place to another. So it's, yeah. So that would be the one that I'd encourage your members to, uh, to see. Okay.
0: Well, I might have preempted our club library question there as well alex <laughs> yeah mistaken, well i don't, i was like... going to say i mean you know because we normally ask our applicants to nominate one particular film or production to add to our club library but i think maybe it's that
1: well yeah maybe i mean unless i can make a plea for a non-biblical one as well oh yes of, of course i think if i was to if i was to put a non-biblical one in there it would have to be the adventures of robin hood the 1938 oh, Errol oh, Flynn. yes i don't think anyone's Brought that one in, yeah.
0: I don't think so, but I mean, I definitely think we should have it. Yeah, yeah, we're Robin Hood fans here, aren't we? I mean, big fans. But (laughs) I would like to know, Matt, why you love the Adventures of Robin Hood.
1: I mean, where to start? I I think I uh, (laughs) I I remember watching this film at my granny's house when I was little, and going back to school the next day and amusing my friends with some of the lines from it. So I've loved it from that age through kind of watching it with my own kids. But, yeah, I mean, again, it's a kind of a very big film. It's one of the early Technicolor films where the Technicolor really kicks in. The kind of chemistry between Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland, and just the sheer charisma of Errol Flynn, and fantastic Corn Gold score as well, and a strong cast. You've got Claude Rains in a, in a minor role, and uh, Michael Curtis, you know, one of his best films. It's, yeah,
0: it's a cracker. Yeah, it's completely joyous. It's also not over long. I no, always appreciate no. that about it. You know, I think yeah. sometimes, especially some of the biblical ones, can bang on a bit, can't they? Whereas well, yeah, we yeah. love films, but you know, under two hours is where they're yeah. best. <laughs> yeah. come on, guys, yeah. under two hours. <laughs>
1: well, I was going to say, I think it's also quite interesting. At the moment, it feels like everything is going towards this kind of black and dark greys colour scheme, and almost sometimes that that is seen as being authentic, and that you know the Middle Ages or whatever are seen as being, you know, everyone wears grey leather, and, and, and humps around in the mud. And, uh, and this film just comes from a different perspective. It slightly kind of respects the the emergence of the story, that kind of myth of Merry England uh, yeah. that the Victorians were into, but also it's happy to use colour, which we know that that period was a colourful period.
0: Yeah. And if we're going to talk about genres of films in terms of fashion, so the Peplum Bible mm. film, then that is like the green felt film versus the tough guy leather film. um, I mean I'm so with you on this because nothing interests me less than a gritty reboot (laughs) 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 no stop it I want to look at nice things being pretty just for god's sake also we can definitely put that one in the library because it doesn't split the club whereas Robin Hood Prince of Thieves is controversial very controversial so we'll go for the Yeah. yeah Errol Flynn every time yeah, absolutely. Good. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Matt. That's in the library. Now, we do also ask our applicants for the harder task of something that they want to ban from the History Film Club. Now, this can be obviously a particular production on film or TV, or it can be just a trope or something that really gets your goat. Um, so what would you like to nominate to ban?
1: Well, you mentioned it at the start, just in passing, but uh, there's quite often with biblical films because they're so often made in America or made in the UK. And as you say, it ends up being somehow you end up having a white blonde Jesus or (laughs) Christian Bale playing Moses or something. And I think particularly when Bible films publicise themselves as being quote-unquote historically accurate and they do this whole thing and then they turn around and they have this white leading character, I think that is something that needs to change really. I wouldn't kind of want to have a complete hard and fast rule that you always have to have people that look like they're from the region playing the characters. I think there can be artistic reasons why that might be an interesting thing to do. My favourite occasion of this is there's a film called Jesus from 1979, and it's the film that has apparently, or its claim to fame is that it's been seen by more people across the globe than any other film because it's been so used by by missionaries and things. And they had a real commitment to trying to do things historically accurate to the extent that, there was one scene that someone noticed after they'd filmed it that in the background there was a eucalyptus tree and apparently eucalyptus trees weren't found in Israel in the time of Jesus. They were a kind of a relatively new thing. So they shot the whole thing again. Um, but <laughs> the guy playing Jesus is a white guy called Brian from just outside Oxford. And it's this, <laughs> it's this complete, you know, with this kind of Timothy hair, it's this com- the complete oh, nice. disconnect between, you know, this on this one level, this obsessive, ball, we're being historically accurate, therefore it must be truth there. And this kind of just total unawareness, really, of the of that. So that, yes, that combination of of whitewashing and claims of historical accuracy, I think, has to go.
0: I think I'm okay. fully with you on that. that. Sounds good. Particularly in such recent films like Exodus and all that, you know, you think, come on, yeah. really, what's the excuse? I mean, not that there was ever an excuse, but really now, yeah. what is the reason? Yeah. More jobs for Middle Eastern actors, I say. So, yeah, mm. absolutely. Especially since, you know, people going to see biblical films, as you say, there's lots of points of entry. It's not necessarily led by big stars anyway.
1: No. And also, you know, as the market is becoming increasingly global for a lot of these films as well, it makes sense that they shouldn't be just restricted in that way. Absolutely. Totally agree.
0: Matt, thank you so much. It's been really fascinating. And to have someone of your breadth of knowledge and expertise, Alex, I think we can safely welcome Matt to the History Film Club, can't we? Oh, most definitely. <laughs> oh, good. Indeed. Some sort of biblical film welcome probably involves, you know, trumpeteers and, uh, and some, <laughs> yeah. you know, dancers and flags and all sorts of exciting things.
1: Well, that does sound exciting. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So Matt, we'd like to welcome all our members to the club by offering you a drink from our club bar, which can serve any drink, historical or modern, alcoholic or not. What could we get
1: for you? Um, I mean, I was a little bit tempted to say uh, a glass of the wine from the last supper, but that's probably a bit too uh, a bit too offensive. (laughs) So so, uh, instead, I I think well, I'd like a glass of Gillespie's Scottish Stout from the nineties. I only had it once at a rugby game. I went with my uncle. And it went down incredibly quickly, and then I never saw it anywhere for sale ever again. So, um, so yeah, that would, uh, that would suit me down to the ground.
0: Well, we have no problem rustling up historical drinks, so we'll find it. Although I'm afraid I'm now immediately thinking of um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. You know, all I can say is, if we get out the cups for the last summer, do not choose poorly. We'll <laughs> yeah, know what yeah. will happen to you.
1: <laughs> yeah, keep, keep the glasses plain.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> Matt Page, thank you so much. Uh, The book is 100 Bible Films. It's out now. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for listening. This has been the History Film Club. I'm Alex von Tunzelman. I'm Hannah Gregg. And we'll see you next time.